G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is 2019's first episode of The Truth of It. Welcome back. This is a weekly newscast on politics and current events, and you might ask, well, why? Well, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is The Truth of It. Today is Thursday, January the 24th, 2019, and we start with the big news of the week, which is Gillette. Uh, the major ma- razor manufacturer uh, caused the big controversy of this past week by launching an advertisement on January the 13th, an ad that opens with the words bullying, toxic masculinity, the Me Too movement. And then it asks the question, is this the best a man can be before showing men engaging in a whole range of bad behaviours, sexist behaviour, misogynistic behaviour, mansplaining, uh, these sorts of things towards women to the background refrain of Boys will be boys, boys will be boys. But it's interesting. At roughly the halfway point, the ad then declares, the narrator says, but something changed. And you might say, well, what changed? What turned men from a a tribe of misogynists into something different? And the something changed is accompanied by newsreel footage uh, concerning the Me Too movement, for those of you who remember that, that came out of Hollywood against, uh, so-called against toxic masculinity, as if that was this defining moment at which the men of the past started to have an epiphany. But the ad is very qualified. It says that some, and I quote, some men have started to do the right thing. It says, but some is not enough because the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow. Now, there's a major sexist element, a major gender-based element to this ad, um, but there's also a race-based element to the ad. It's worth noting this. Of the 43 examples of bad behaviour that are depicted, 42 of them are by white men and only one is by a black man turn that around, look at the seven examples of bad behaviour that the ad includes, because of course there's got to be a lot less, because only some men have started to do the right thing, because thanks to me too. Uh, Of the seven examples of good behaviour, five are by black men, and just two are by white men. So far on YouTube, that ad has garnered 700,000 likes and 1.2 million dislikes. It's caused great division, great controversy. But here's the difficulty in dealing with this. And as I've been thinking about it, I've wondered at this as well. Many people will watch that ad and they will say, well, is there really a big deal? What's wrong with saying that, well, it's it's a bad thing for men to behave badly towards women? What's wrong with saying that the boys of today will become the men of tomorrow? At least those points are reasonable, right? And do you know what? There's some truth in that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to uh, begrudge that point. But there is a lot of others, as those numbers indicate, who are watching that ad and they know that something isn't right. They know that, well, quite apart from the fact that that's a lie, that some men have started to do the right thing since Me Too. That's just not correct. And it's a very sad and low view of men in the world at the moment. But apart from that, people know there's something going on here. And also that is correct. It is absolutely correct because let's deconstruct this. What's really being said And from what ideological basis is this ad really coming from? Well, um, you know, let's look at the company itself. Do they put their money where their mouth is? Do they live, do they walk the talk, if you like? Well, are they really trying to protect women from the evils of sexualization and bad behavior from men? Are they really trying to help men be better and become the men of tomorrow for the boys of today? Well, do you know, this company, it's the same company that widely advertises its brand, 
by putting models in exceedingly tight-fitting leather bodysuits at motorsport events and literally writing Gillette across their backsides. So women's bodies, their backsides in particular, are being used as billboards for the Gillette brand. These are promo girls at motorsport events frequented by men. Now, I'm a white man that was completely unaffected by the Me Too movement, and I'm here to say that that is categorically, absolutely wrong. And I raise that issue because I want to say what's really going on here in the brain box of the Gillette marketing team. You know, it's the same thing that we saw in the week previous from the American Psychological Association. It is that thing whereby, well, the American Psychological Association said traditional masculinity is harmful. They made that declaration. And some of the things defined as traditionally masculine by that association are things like competitiveness, risk-taking, stoicism. So they're attacking what it means to be man. They're attacking masculinity writ large, full stop. Uh, And one of the authors of that report, Ryan McDermott, actually questions what gender even is in the 2010s, saying that it's no longer just about the male-female binary. See, here's the truth. We live in a world where there is a very strong idea running through our culture that's starting to be preached more and more from marketing departments and through politics and through institutions, an idea that says all of the world's evil exists because some people are powerful. And one of those categories of powerful people is men. Therefore, men need to be taken down. Men need to be disempowered. Men need to be re-educated. They need to be rewired from the cradle to the grave. Every institution, every cultural voice, every media personality, every celebrity needs to get in their ears, re-educate them and reprogram them because, well, they need to repress their manness. They need to repress that evil, that tendency to do justice to all the victims of the world because wherever there's power, there are victims. That is why some people watched this ad and they knew that something wasn't right. Something was wrong. It is the fruit of, it is the manifestation of, and it's clear when you look at the detail, of a toxic ideology. You know, masculinity is not toxic. Femininity is not toxic. Masculine and feminine were created by God himself, who made male and female. And he made them at different times. He made them for different stated purposes. He made them out of different materials. He made them with innate wiring that equips them to fulfill God's design and purpose for them ever since the world was created. The real question is this. It's not whether a man is masculine or a woman is feminine. The question is, what is the seedbed of character that is informing, that is channeling, that is, that is driving that masculine man or that feminine woman to good ends as against bad ends. Do you know a man uh, who is of a man of character will take his masculine traits, whether that is a, a proclivity toward risk-taking or the desire to be an example, which many men carry, or a, a willingness to protect uh, others, or, or, or a desire there is to be a provider for others, or an innate stoicism or an emotional resilience that a man may have uh, by virtue of these traits. Or you know, what he's going to do if he's a man of character is he's going to channel those things. He's not going to destroy them and deconstruct them and question them and tell his sons not to model them. He's going to channel them towards good ends. He will channel them in service for others. He will channel them in the leadership of others. 
And that service and that leadership will make him better and will make others better for it. His masculinity will be tempered by virtue, by character, by by traits like self-control, a big one for guys, or wisdom, to know the ends of the of the of the things that he will do, of love for others, of of a conviction about what is right and that which needs to be stood for in our times and our generation. Uh, various other virtues which guide a man to good ends. And the same is true for women, exactly. It's really not different in the terms of its basic principles. A woman's femininity can be channeled to perverse and toxic ends, or it can be grounded and informed and channeled with that base of good character that leads her to that for which God made her. Sin, you see, doesn't have a masculine identity. Evil is not just found where there's power. Sin is actually the human condition, not the masculine condition. And evil is found, sadly, throughout a fallen world, not merely in structures of power. Let me say this. The solution to the human condition is always Christ and his character. And that doesn't erase male and female. But I want to point this out in relation to the whole business, the whole ad. What we saw here is just the latest proof of a long-standing reality that wherever identity politics raises its ugly head, discord and division will always be sown. And the last thing that we need in this generation, particularly for our young people, is to pit them against each other and to sow division. Men and women need each other. They don't need to be against each other. Our young people need to be in good marriages, good relationships. They need strong families. And identity politics is rending those things apart across a massive spectrum of different character traits. And I fear that we will rue the day that we said masculinity is evil. We will rue the day that we pitted men and women against each other in a struggle for power. And we will rue the day that we stopped holding high the character of Jesus Christ and teaching that and instilling that in the people of our times. That's Gillette. Now we're moving on to politicians who are resigning. And there's actually quite a lot of them. Uh, there are m- probably more government MPs and senators coming down the line because, let's face it, the writing is on the wall. All predictions are saying that May is going to be a wipeout for the government. And if you're an MP or a senator with career prospects, you're going to start weighing up your options. So there'll be more. But we've had David Bushby, senator. He's gone. Uh, we've actually had um, Jacinta Collins, although from Labor, she's gone as well recently. But also considering resigning reportedly are Craig Laundie, David Coleman, Julie Bishop, or coalition MPs, but the big surprise came this week in the resignation of Government Minister Kelly O'Dwyer. You know, Kelly O'Dwyer has long been something of a pin-up for the fact that women can have it all. They can be a high-flying government minister, they can be a mother of several kids, they can be a wife and all of this, and yet after being occupying that role for some time, uh, she's resigned. And she cited her young family and the desire to not consistently miss out, I quote, on being with them in the coming years. Um, She said, this does not mean that women need to choose between family and public service. They don't. And yet, as she was saying that, she was. She was choosing between family and a political career at this stage of her life. Um, And, you know, it is a sad reality. There's no doubt 
that politics is becoming almost totally incompatible with family life. Resignation after resignation from both men, mainly men, and women in recent years has come through citing family reasons. And most of those are for real because politics is a brutal life. It's a life on the road. It's a life working nights. It's a life in which you're driven by external circumstances. It's a life in which you can never just really switch off. And so what are we to make of this? Well, you've got the opinion of Sally McManus, the ACTU uh, unionist who showed no empathy for O'Dwyer. She said that she'd simply thrown in the towel. But you know what I say to Kelly O'Dwyer and I say to the number of others, um, the men and the women who have tendered resignations for this reason in recent times, I say good on you. Honestly, good on you. Good on any MP and senator who realises early that they're a father or a mother first and they're called to love their families absolutely. If your career doesn't permit that, leave or change something. Time and again, you know, this is an early lesson for me, time and again I've seen people, normally men, who make that realisation too late. When they're full of pain, they're full of regret, when their kids are too old, when they've missed out, when their marriage isn't what it could have been, that's not right. The Christian response is, you know, Miss O'Dwyer, Godspeed uh, and God bless. And um, look, I trust that if there's any who cannot reconcile the two, that family will always win because that is what God has called us to first. Do you know, nothing in what I just said there is intended to be gender-based. That's a man and a woman comment. And in fact, it's mostly something that's applied to men. But simply by virtue of recent debates um, and the participation of Ms O'Dwyer and others in those debates, um, the gender issue comes up yet again. That's the world in which we live. And the issue of quotas. Uh, Do we need more women in Parliament? Do we need more men in Parliament? Um, You know, they're all saying that there should be 50-50 quotas. Um, Look, let me just make a few observations on that. The only reason somebody would say that quotas are important is firstly if they think that the giving of someone power in politics or business is a measure of how we value them. So if less women have that power, we devalue women. That is complete rubbish. Complete rubbish. It's got no Christian grounding whatsoever. And in fact, Jesus showed the opposite values system where he showed that he valued totally those who were of pure hearts, those who sought God, who were usually people of no earthly status and no earthly station. In fact, his own mother was a peasant woman from a backwater town who had nothing except her character. Uh, So that's an inversion of Jesus' value system. Or sometimes people might say, well, uh, the disparity between men and women in these places is only the product of of oppression, societal oppression or masculine oppression uh, or or something um, like that. But of course, again, As I was saying before, male and female were created different, with different innate wirings, with different purposes, different reasons for existence, different psychologies, and the studies are now showing that. One of the great perplexities, they say, in psychological science at the moment is the realisation that when you maximise choice for men and women, you actually maximise their differences, and you maximise the differences in their choices between careers as well. Now, if that's the way it is, because God made male and female, well, so be it. Which leaves us with, well, some people would say, well, you know, in order for women to be properly served, they must be served by other women. Or for those who take the identity politics to the nth degree, you have those who say, well, homosexuals can't be served properly in politics and parliament except by other homosexuals. Or or, or, or people uh, of of, um, different ethnicities can't be served properly except by people of those same ethnicities. Um, 
Well, that's the end of this identity politics game. And once again, it's a completely anti-Christian idea. Um, Do you know politics is a question the politician is called to exalt what is right and to punish what is wrong? The politician is called to do what Solomon did, which is what he prayed for wisdom, that he might discern between good and evil, that he might be efficient and able to govern a great people. Um, Politicians are asked to discern those things that don't change, that are not identity-based, that are right and that are wrong. And you can serve people however. You can always serve people, whoever they are, by achieving that purpose. Um, And, you know, the ultimate fact is this. Jesus didn't have to be a woman to save women. And a politician doesn't have to be a woman in order to do what's right. A politician doesn't have to be a man in order to do what's right. A politician has to be a person of fine character. And so the gender quotas thing keeps coming up. Uh, But, you know, we should allow things to take their natural course. And I think the natural course would be that there would probably be a few more men in politics, but there'd be a few more women in plenty of other areas. That's that. Uh, Next issue is school freedom. The school freedom bill is back uh, late last year. You will have uh, probably caught wind of the fairly robust debate in the parliament about the fact that there's a bill that's been introduced that threatens the religious freedom of Christian schools. It's an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act, and it was brought in because the claim was made, well, religious schools are able to expel uh, gay and transgender students, and therefore we need to amend the law. And all the schools said, well, whatever, no worries, nobody uses that right anyway, so go for it. But the bill that was introduced by Senator Penny Wong went an awful lot further. That bill, in fact, applies to any religious institution, not just schools. It would include tertiary providers and others. And it applies to the provision of education. Uh, And so you say to yourself, well, okay, um, let's take the schools issue. Uh, Is not teaching safe schools discrimination? Is it detriment to homosexual kids because you're not teaching them about their identity? You know, there's some suggestion from other countries that that might be the case. Or worse still, is the overt teaching of a biblical sexual ethic detrimental to gay kids or transgender kids? Is the enforcement of gender-based school policies detrimental? Is, you know, the answer legally is probably ultimately going to be yes. And so this bill prevents schools from teaching the Bible. It prevents schools from teaching Christian ethics. It prevents schools from having policies that uphold those things and living consistent with those things. But also, I mentioned before, it doesn't just apply to schools. Is a church body that conducts a sermon engaging in education, like the provision of education? If it is, we're in big trouble. What can the sermon say and what can't it say? The bill threatens to be one of the biggest assaults on religious freedom we've actually seen in Australia. There was an inquiry into that bill over Christmas when it failed to pass last year very closely. Um, ACL put in a submission to that inquiry with 242 others, uh, and the debate is coming back on in February. Now, Tanya Plipersek was out last at the end of the last debate, and she was saying, this is simple. We don't support discrimination against children. Uh, uh, if we don't support discrimination against children in our schools, then we support the bill. We should not allow this to be complicated by political agendas, uh, other than the simple desire to let our children live their true selves and not be discriminated against in their schooling. Now, the fact is, no one disagrees about that. No one disagrees that a kid uh, shouldn't be expelled from school simply because of their uh, same-sex attraction. The fact rather is that this debate is about the freedom to teach Christianity. It's that simple. The fact is that no school wants to expel a kid simply because they are gay. 
The fact is, there are no examples of gay kids having been expelled simply because they're gay. Um, That is the nature of this debate. And what you can do at the moment is just go on the Australian Parliament website and uh, you can look at the senators that represent you in your state and especially focus on those that are not Green, not Labor and not Liberal. So if they're Centre Alliance, if they're Independent, if they're One Nation, if they're United Australia Party or something like this, look at them uh, and call their office and let them know that you would like them to vote against Penny Wong's amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act when Parliament resumes in February uh, and that you really, really care about the freedom of religious schools to teach Christian values. And if you have kids in a Christian school or relatives or you know someone, even better. Say, look, we've made sacrifices for this child and we want to protect the integrity of their education. Senators are listening. And if you make those calls to the crossbench senators between now and the middle of February, a trickle of calls that could really make all the difference. Now, um, this schooling issue is not just something that we see in Australia. Um, There was a huge controversy about this in the US recently when it was revealed that Mike Pence's wife volunteers for a Christian school that has a traditional Christian sexual ethic and gender identity ethic. Um, And that's been a huge blow up and there's been huge controversy and they've criticised Mike Pence and his wife tremendously. But it's not just the USA. There are other countries that are way further down the line than we are. And that takes me to the Wunderlich case, which is a German case. You see, in Germany, homeschooling is actually illegal. Um, They're that far down the line. Um, And despite that, Dirk and Petra Wunderlich, they've been engaged in this long struggle with the German state over the right to homeschool their children. They have four kids. And in 2006, while they were homeschooling, they were fined several hundred euros for doing so. Uh, And then in 2008, after continued pressure from the government, they left their own country. They moved to France. And in France, they tried to homeschool their kids. Uh, But of course, uh, the German government pursued them. And in a cross-border intervention, the German government uh, pursued them into France and got French authorities to actually come and remove their kids from them in 2008. Um, Uh, 2009, sorry. Uh, And then in 2012, they got those kids back after a few days, mysteriously, uh, and then they carried on their merry way for a time. But in 2012, they had employment struggles. They had to move back to Germany. And you can imagine what happened thereafter. Shortly afterwards, the German district court took legal custody of the Bundelich children, gave them to German social services. There was another removal of the kids. This time they were disappeared for three weeks. Uh, Bundelich's passports were revoked during that time. Um, and uh, it was really, according to the parents, an incredibly stressful and difficult time, as you can imagine. And, you know, with the help of the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Wunderlichs sought to defend their right to homeschool. The European Convention on Human Rights protects the right to family life without state interference. And they used that right to challenge uh, the German state's actions. But, unfortunately, the European Court of Human Rights upheld the validity of homeschooling and said that the German government had done nothing wrong. Uh, Robert Clark, who's lead counsel on the case, said this. He said, The people who have consistently shown the most concern for these children through proceedings are the parents who have fought for justice ever since their children were seized. From the very beginning, they chose to live a frugal life so that they could be at home with their children as they grew up. The overt assumption here, the parents do not have their children's best interests at heart and that the state knows better should trouble any parent whether your children are educated at home or at school. And that's what's going on here. There is an underlying belief that the parents don't know There is an underlying belief that religious institutions don't know, but the state knows. 
and the state-enforced orthodoxy on social matters, and particularly in the Australian context on sexual and gender, sexual orientation and gender identity matters, is to be preferred. And therefore, the rights to educate our kids in accordance with our moral and religious values will be stripped away, even if it means, as in parts of Europe, the banning altogether of homeschooling. I'm going to finish on a good news story, uh, a good news story which is the March for Life. The March for Life is held annually in Washington D.C. on the eve uh, on the uh, sorry anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which many of you will know is the case uh, that uh, that saw abortion legalized en masse in the U.S. and tens of millions of babies have been aborted ever since. It's held on January the 18th every year, and there's videos on YouTube you can look up. The march was absolutely massive. Uh, it's become the biggest human rights demonstration in the world. Uh, and this year was addressed for the first time by a sitting president. And Donald Trump made some really good comments, actually, which you can look up online. But I want to focus on the speech by Ben Shapiro. Um, and this is a lengthy extract, but it just nails the issue. He says this, and he's speaking of Roe versus Wade and the, uh, the avalanche of abortions in the U.S. since the 70s. He says, we pretended that human beings were not actually human beings. We pretended that human beings with DNA different from their fathers and their mothers, human beings developing in their, their own red blood cells by 12 weeks, their own fingerprints by week eight, their own developing eyes, legs and hands by week five, their own forming nervous systems by week three. We pretended that these were not human lives at all, but disposable balls of meat. We fought to avoid looking directly at the ugly truth of what we had done. We created euphemisms, termination of pregnancy, abortion, choice, what we were really engaging in was the mass killing of the unborn, of course. Millions of children who would never be held, who would never open their eyes, who would never see the sunrise, who would never become parents and then grandparents. The dismemberment of babies in the womb, the torture of tiny bodies. And we told ourselves that we were virtuous for our lie. We reversed good and evil. We told ourselves that the killing had to continue because if it didn't, we would be disadvantaging women or raising crime rates or imposing economic hardship. We told young women that abortion wasn't merely a choice, but a valuable and worthwhile choice. We told them to shout their abortion, to be proud of participating in the killing of the unborn. We, exercised those, we excised those who stood for life. Governor Andrew Como said just a few years ago that those who believe in the right to life, quote, have no place in the state of New York. Just this week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that pro-lifers were not in line with, quote, where we are as a society. Well, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe we are here today and we are not in line with society. We live in a time where perhaps we are out of line with the rest of our, rest of our country, to which I say, good. So were the abolitionists. So were the civil rights marchers. So were the martyrs in Rome and the Jews in Egypt. Righteousness doesn't have to be popular. It just has to be righteous. To which I say, bang on. And you know, Ben Shapiro, he's a Jew, but I'm a Christian. And I'll say this, Jesus Christ said exactly the same thing. So let's be encouraged. Christ calls us to righteousness. It might not be popular, but it is righteous. That was the truth of it. And I'm Martin Isle.